Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is the Dry Cleaner Cast. Welcome to the Dry Cleaner Cast, a podcast that takes a new look at the war on terror, its legacy, and espionage in the 21st century. This podcast is written, edited, and presented by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, I'm joined by author John Calvert, and we discuss his book, Saeed Qutb and the Origins of Radical Islam. The threat from Al-Qaeda has made Qutb a household name as journalists and scholars have formed a consensus that the road to 9-11 leads back to Saeed Qutb. John Calvert in his book mentions that it's unwise to assume a direct link between Saeed Qutb and Al-Qaeda, so today we're going to take a look at that link. Just before we begin, if you like this podcast and the work that I'm doing, you may enjoy my film, The Dry Cleaner, which is my first sort of foray into spy fiction. The film is only 19 minutes, so it won't uh, it won't take too long to watch. But uh, it's a, I think, an important piece of work for me, and uh, and I hope I hope that you will find it interesting. It's an exciting modern film about the relationship between a British intelligence officer and his asset who has links to a terrorist organisation. You can watch the film now on Amazon or iTunes. If you type in the dry cleaner film onto either Amazon or iTunes, it will take you to a link so you can watch the film. And I think it retails roughly at about one one pound ninety nine, which I think is just over two dollars, uh, depending on on where you watch it. And uh, and if we get enough views, I'm hoping that I can take those statistics and make the bigger version of the film. Um, the full version of The Dry Cleaner, which I'm currently writing with my producer and co-writer, Thomas Lumo. If you are enjoying this podcast, please do spread the word by joining us on Twitter by going to at DryCleanerCast. You can also directly support the podcast by becoming a Patreon subscriber. If you go to patreon.com forward slash DryCleanerCast, you can become a subscriber and directly support this show. All of the links I've mentioned, including to the film, are on your podcast app now. If you just click on the image, you will see a series of links, and uh, you'll see a link to the trailer for my film, The Dry Cleaner. You'll see a link to the film on our website, drycleanercast.co.uk forward slash watch the film. You'll also get the Patreon links, and you'll get links to the works of our guest, who today is John Calvert. So I hope you enjoyed this episode, and uh, do let us know what you think. Please give us a five-star review on your favorite podcast app and without further ado let's get going thank you for listening opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film the dry cleaner Hello, John. Welcome to the Dry Cleaner Cast. Delighted to be with you, Chris. Thank you for joining us. Can you just tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to be interested in Saeed Qutb? Well, I'm a professor of history at Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska, uh, right in the middle of America. Uh, Creighton's a private Jesuit university. It's got a student population of about 6,000. 
I'm the only faculty who teaches and researches the Middle East at Creighton. It's lonely, but um, it means I also have the field to myself, uh, the scope to develop all kinds of interesting courses in medieval and modern Middle East history. Um, I grew up in Alberta, Canada. From a young age, I was possessed of, um, I suppose, romantic or orientalist inclination, always interested in remote times, faraway places. Um, I did degrees in classics and medieval history and eventually Islamic studies at McGill University. And it was while living in Cairo in the late 1980s that I first became interested in, in Sayyid Qutb. At that time, there were a number of insurgent groups forming up in southern Egypt, and uh, Sayyid Qutb's name was in the air. And so I decided to uh, base my PhD dissertation on his life and thought, but it, it wasn't until after 9-11, um, with all the interest and concern that that event generated, that I really buckled down and uh, wrote a book on Sayyid Qutb. Excellent. What was 80s Egypt like? It must have been quite an interesting time for yourself. Well, it was. I mean, it was in the middle of Mubarak's um, tenure as president. Um, the Islamist movement was in full swing, at least in the form of the Muslim Brotherhood, um, but again, there were these sort of signs of emergent extremism in the air. But, you know, culturally vibrant, uh, always interesting. It sounds like a, a great setting for a spy novel. Right. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Um, can you give us a snapshot of who Saeed Qutb is and his influence today? Saeed Qutb was an Egyptian. He was born in 1906 in southern Egypt near the city of Asyut. He was the great theatrician of 20th century Islamism, especially in its radical or revolutionary mode. He argued for the necessity of building a Muslim utopia, an ideal Islamic order uh, through jihad, including violent struggle if needs be. Um, he was executed in 1966 on the orders of Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser, who was the paragon of secular Arab nationalism. Qutb's nemesis. Qutb was involved in a, an alleged conspiracy against the regime. Uh, today, jihadi groups of, of all kinds uh, regard Qutb as a progenitor. And in part, they trace their ideological genealogies back to Sayyid Qutb. He really is a founding figure, uh, much revered. His influence remains strong and pervasive. To get into, should we say, the world and the minds of Sai Qutb, we'll have to go down a few things. So first of all, could you just give us a sort of dummy's guide to, to Islamism and what the terms reformist and radical Islamism mean? Sure. Well, Islamism is difficult to pin down with the definition simply because the phenomenon is so large and diverse. But, but basically, I'd say Islamism is an ideology. Um, that wants to reassert Islam's political, moral, and social primacy in the contemporary world. This is a primacy which Islamists believe has been compromised, um, both by alleged deviation within the faith. Um, you know, most Islamists decry Sufis and, and Shi'is, for example, as corruptors of Islam. Um, but especially by the spread into Muslim lands of Western political and cultural uh, power. So Islamists feel their identity to be at risk, and so they focus on the pure Islam, the earliest generations of Muslims. Um, Islamists say that the restoration of 
uh, authentic Islam will guarantee things like uh, social justice, um, economic fair dealing, uh, probity and public affairs. I believe further that empowered by true Islamic principles, Muslims will find their potential as shining exemplars of modernity imbued with spiritual value. So whereas other Muslims may focus solely on ritual matters, on, on prayer, on, on fasting, on pilgrimage and so forth, Islamists view the religion as something that needs to be justified, something that needs to be defended uh, against countervailing systems such as liberal capitalism and communism. Just one final word on, on, on sort of a definition of Islamism. It's interesting that historically the great champions of Islamism have been laymen, not religious clerics, not from amongst the ulama. Um, Islamists tend to regard the ulama as old-fashioned, as out of touch with the needs of the people, and um, is compromised by their close association with the powers that be, with the state. Many are salaried uh, employees of the state. Hmm. They sound a bit like millennials. <laughs> <laughs> right. There might be a connection there. Um, now, historically... Um, mm. To get to your question about uh, reformist and radical uh, varieties of Islamism, Islamism is divided into these two broad um, tendencies. Yeah. Now, reformists are represented most prominently by the um, Muslim Brotherhood, uh, which was founded in Egypt in 1928 uh, by a primary school teacher named Hassan al-Banna. Um, it has branches all over the Arab world. There are similar organizations elsewhere. Um, you have the Justice and Development Party in Turkey, for example. Um, the method of these reformist Islamists is to accommodate Islam to the requirements of modernity, um, but in a way that reinforces Islamic values and social identity. And in this, they're to be distinguished uh, from the Islamic modernists, um, who were more sort of prominent, I suppose, in the early decades of the 20th century than now, um, but who were more cavalier in their um, interpretation of Islam, more willing to um, blend Islam with um, modern, uh, well, Western notions of, of um, statecraft and, and, and living. Getting back to the reformist Islamists like the Muslim Brotherhood, their methods tend to be gradualist, they operate within existing state structures, they engage in advocacy journalism, um, they provide services to the people that the state is either unwilling or unable to provide. Um, their goal really is to build an Islamic society and state from the bottom up uh, through a slow conversion of, of hearts and minds. Um, but then you have the radicals or, or jihadis, and they abjure this gradualist strategy um, and instead demand a complete end to the prevailing power structure. Um, they are revolutionists. Um, they believe in the Leninist tactic of the surgical strike. And um, this group can in turn be divided into subgroups. There are what we call irredentist jihadis or interested in liberating um, Muslim lands uh, occupied uh, by infidels, Kashmir, for example, or Palestine. There are revolutionary jihadis, the classical variety to which Uta belongs, who are interested in toppling regimes in the Muslim world, uh, seem to be insufficiently Islamic. And then there are the uh, globalist um, 
Islamists, jihadis who fight internationally for the revival of the universal caliphate. And each of these varieties of jihadism um, are influenced to some degree by, by Sayyid Qutb. Some people have sort of, I don't know if it's the right label, but some people call him the sort of spiritual godfather of, uh, of Islamism. Well, I, I think that's a, that's a fair point. Um, you know, Hassan al-Banna is the, really the founder of the, the Muslim Brotherhood, the, the primary sort of root movement, Islamism. But Sayyid Qutb uh, certainly took Islamism in, in, in a further direction. So to understand Qutb, I think we need to sort of try and understand the Egypt he lived through. Can you give us an overview of the changes that the country went through in his lifetime? Well, Qutb was born in 1906 um, in yeah. southern Egypt. Um, born into an Egypt that was rapidly modernizing. Um, economically, Egypt was dependent on the export of commodities to European markets, especially long staple cotton. Yeah. Um, political power was shared by a small elite made up of members of the Muhammad Ali dynasty, uh, large landowners and um, Levantine and European business community. And most especially uh, the British, uh, who had occupied Egypt in 1882, had turned Egypt into a protectorate in 1914 um, during the First World War, and um, who signed with the Egyptians subsequent treaty agreements, the most notable uh, of which was signed in 1936. There was a small but growing middle class known as the Effendia. This is the class to which Qutb belonged. It was made up of uh, civil servants and clerks. Most Egyptians, however, were poor and worked on the land, um, and their poverty was of, of great concern, um, especially to reformers um, amongst the Effendia. I think it's important also to note that this is a time of cultural effervescence, um, a time of great creativity in Egypt. Egypt is really the cultural center of the Arab world. And so you have writers like Taha Hussein, uh, poets like Abu Shadi and Ahmed Shaui, musicians like Um Kalthum. All of these were making their mark popular in Egypt and in surrounding Arab countries. In fact, many today, and, and not just those whose social positions were compromised by the coming of the soldiers in 1952, um, look back to old regime Egypt as an elegant and magical place, um, uh, sort of a, a, almost a golden age in the country's history. But at that time, there was a lot of, um, I suppose, resentment and things, especially against the sort of British uh, in almost a sort of as an occupational force. Is that right? Of course, yes. I mean, yeah. there was a, a growing uh, vociferous nationalist movement. Um, whose ire was aimed both at the indigenous ruling establishment as well as the British, because aristocratic politicians were regarded as collaborators uh, with, with the British. And, yeah, there's a lot of resentment against the ruling regime. Yeah, and and there was a, uh, just from memory of your book, that particularly with World War Two, and um, there was a sense that Egypt was being sort of brought into a kind of European war. Is that right? Well, that's right. I mean, Egypt, Egypt was essentially occupied by British and Commonwealth troops during the Second World War. Mm. In fact, the British forced an Egyptian out of office to make place for a government that would be willing to cooperate uh, with Great Britain 
or closely in the war against Nazi Germany and Italy. Um, and and I, I think during this period, I mean, that those events basically um, galvanized the Egyptian nationalist movement even more than had been hitherto the case. Yeah. So can you tell us a bit about sort of Kutub's journey to becoming an Islamist? Because he grew up in a sort of small village and, um, and obviously ended up being this sort of, should we say, iconic figure. Um, so it's quite a journey he's been on. Can you, can you sort of take us through those sort of key events that sort of turned him into an Islamist? Yeah, I mean, his, uh, his upbringing was unremarkable. Um, he was born into a, a feeding um, agricultural family. Um, mm. The father was forced to sell land for the family's upkeep. And, and so, you know, both the mother and father decided that Qutb should go to Cairo. Uh, for his higher education and enter the ranks of the FND, become a salaried employee of the state. Yeah. Um, that way he could restore the family's fading fortunes. Um, and so could have did make his way to Cairo um, in the late teens of the 20th century, um, entered into the teacher's training college and um, became an employee of the Ministry of Education. Um, he fancied him. He was engaged in Egypt's political life, fancied himself a writer a poetic temperament, wrote literary criticism. In fact, he was the first critic to review the up-and-coming author Naguib Mahfouz. He was extremely prolific in terms of his output, um, writing essays almost every day. Um, he aspired to literary greatness. I think that eluded him. He was a second-rate poet, and his essays didn't attract all that much notice. Um, now, in his early phase, going stretching from the 1920s to the in 1940s, um, Qutb subscribed to the secular Egyptian territorial nationalism of the day, um, which regarded Islam simply as an aspect of the national personality, but, but not its defining mode. In the late 1940s, he became disillusioned uh, by the failures of the nationalist parties. Um, he saw that they did nothing to address this growing gap between rich and poor. Yeah. You know, Qutb was very much concerned during this period with the plight of the fellahin, the long-suffering peasantry of Egypt. He saw that the regime of king and parliamentarians did nothing to rid the country of the remaining traces of British power and influence. And he was um, angry that the regime led Egypt to defeat against the newly created state of Israel in 1948. The regime was responsible for Egypt's humiliation, first Arab-Israeli war. And so could have tended to regard um, Islamism, already well in place in the form of the Muslim Brotherhood, as a viable alternative, and he began to drift uh, toward it. He didn't join the Muslim Brotherhood, though, until 1953. And um, when he did, it was it was a great catch for the Brotherhood because could have already sort of made a reputation for himself as an Islamist. And he was almost immediately elevated to the position of um, head of the propaganda department. You know, he had a way with words. He was an effective communicator. So he was the man for the job. Um, his very first Islamist work, so significant Islamist work um, written during this phase was uh, Social Justice in Islam, in which he basically equates true social justice um, with Quranic principles. Um, Islam leads to uh, social balance, everything in its place. Um, only through Islam will one find true social justice. Needn't look to socialism, European socialism. Needn't look to any other Western ideology. Islam is a self-contained system that has all of the answers to society's ills. 
he went to America uh, during this period, uh, almost two years, 1948 to 1950. I'll just say briefly that he was impressed by America's accomplishments. But he held Americans to be shallow, uh, vacuous, uh, sexually promiscuous, and materialistic. He uh, so identified America as the new imperial power, stepping into the shoes um, vacated by Great Britain and France. Then um, he, he, he radicalizes. Um, this is his um, last and most sort of important phase of his career. Um, and what time was that, sorry, when he radicalized? The, um, the mid-1950s. You know, Qutb and the Muslim Brotherhood generally were early supporters of the Free Officers Movement, led by Gamal Abdel Nasser. The Free Officers had created this conspiracy in the Egyptian army. And they were just waiting for an opportune moment to make their move and topple the uh, regime of king and parliamentarians. Um, Qutb and the Brotherhood, as I say, initially supported the free officers. They saw them as natural allies against the failing regime. In fact, Qutb met uh, with Nasser at Qutb's Helwan house. Helwan is a suburb of Cairo. Hmm. On the eve of the July 23, 1952 coup, Nasser hoped that the Muslim Brotherhood would provide street security if things got out of hand uh, during the coup. Um, well, the coup did succeed. The king was sent into exile. The free officers began a political house cleaning. But within a couple of years, tension erupted between the Muslim Brotherhood and the free officers. The Muslim Brotherhood was afraid that the free officers were manipulating them. And Nasser and the Free Officers, on the other hand, were afraid of the Muslim Brothers' power base. Um, wasn't sure that um, they would be able to control uh, the Islamists. And the matter came to a head in October 1954, uh, when a Muslim brother unsuccessfully attempted to assassinate Gamal Abdel Nasser. This is the pretext Nasser needed to prescribe the organization. And Qutb was one of hundreds of Muslim brothers caught up in the dragnet that followed. He was sentenced to 15 years for a prison in the Mukattam Hills, just outside of Cairo. It was this imprisonment, it was this torture, this ill treatment that turned Qutb into an impassioned and very bitter revolutionary. I mean, how could Muslims treat other Muslims this way? Uh, something was wrong, Qutb said. And, you know, he came to understand that the Muslim Brotherhood's gradualist approach was ineffective against a regime of this kind, a regime that was prepared to eradicate its Islamist and other critics. And so he shifted his emphasis from Islam's equation with social justice to the issue of, of political legitimacy. Nasser regime was unjust. It ought to be replaced forcefully to make space for an Islamic order. And this Radical position, I think, really confirms the contention that the totalistic quality of a revolutionary mo movement owes a lot, owes much to the authoritarian regime against which it operates. Um, such had been the case in Tsarist Russia, for example. You know, when you have anarchists and nihilists of various kinds facing off against the, the regime there. And it was thus that he began to compose his famous prison works, uh, as elements of which were smuggled out of uh, Limantura by his sister, Amida. Tell us a bit more about his time in prison, because obviously this is where the milestones was written, isn't it? And um, which is sort of his, is that in a way his seminal text? I mean, there's, there's many texts that Saikud was known for, but the milestones in particular is um, is one that uh, gets quoted often. Um, 
so he was tortured in prison and, and eventually he ends up being executed because he was saying he got a 15-year sentence. Why, what led to him being executed? Well, during prison, um, he was smuggling um, writings um, out of the prison. His sister Hamida would visit him and, and he would pass on to her um, certain of his writings, including milestones. And um, those writings um, were then used to sort of indoctrinate a group of Muslim brothers who had escaped the dragnet who had been recently released. And so the, 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 the roots of a, of a radical group was forming outside the prison walls. When Qutb was finally released in 1964 at the behest of the Iraqi uh, president, Qutb met up with this group of conspirators and they were found out and uh, Qutb was tried a second time and, and this time uh, executed. But, you know, his seminal prison work was this chronic exegesis, Fees um, Alala Quran, in the shade of the Quran. Actually begun it in the mid-1950s. And after he was imprisoned, he went back and rewrote the earlier sections, carried it on until the end, in light of his prison experience. And it was from this work, Fees Alala Quran, that um, milestone uh, was derived. Qutb basically has three ideas and three sort of seminal ideas that that um, shine through in this this chronic exegesis and in its offshoot milestones. One is the notion of hakamia, sort of an Arabic neologism. It it means God's sovereignty or dominion. The idea is that God is the only legitimate lawgiver in the universe. He stands alone above his creation. Qutb asks, who knows better, you or God? Yet in history, there have been those who would usurp God's prerogative and who would craft laws of their own design. These laws are necessarily imperfect because they are mired in human self-interest. They don't look out for the common good. And this, says Qutb, is the case today. He doesn't quite name names, but he certainly has Gamal Abdel Nasser in mind. Consequently, says Qutb, the world is in a state of jahiliyyah. This is an Arabic word. It means ignorance, ignorance of the divine mandate. The term is old. It's found in the Quran, and it originally referred to the ignorance that prevailed in the Arabian Peninsula prior to the advent of Islam. But for Qutb, uh, jahiliyyah was an existential condition that could exist at any time in any place. And he believed that all societies in the modern age were jahili, Western as well as Muslim, because nowhere was the Sharia in full effect. The third basic idea in this work is the need for a circle of true Muslims, uh, a vanguard, would awaken the masses from their deception, from their slumber, and mobilize them in the direction of comprehensive change. And in coming to this tactic, Qutb had in mind the uh, example or the model of the Prophet Muhammad, um, who from a position of uh, initial weakness in Mecca, gradually built up his power in Medina so that he could confront, uh, confront head-on the oppressors um, of the age. Um, but I think this, this notion of the vanguard is also very much inspired by modern uh, currents of, uh, of rebellion, you know, the Jacobin tradition. And um, certainly his, his um, 
sort of ideas kind of plays into that idea of a clash of civilizations, which modern jihadi groups uh, tend to sort of try and frame the world in. It's sort of um, the Islamic world versus the Western world or the rest of the world. By all means, I mean, it's a very Manichaean concept. Uh, his is Balah versus Hizbah Shaitan, the party of God versus the party of Satan. There's no room for compromise in this scenario. It's a zero-sum game, either Islam or its opposite. And this, of course, is a concept that really has sort of empowered and inspired many of the jihadi groups operative today. We'll go a bit more into that in a short while. Let's just quickly talk a bit about, um, because I could have ideology wasn't just political was it there was a sort of there's a sort of um you know we've got to look into sort of his religious side as well you mentioned that um you know to understand could have we need to sort of plumb the depths of his religious imagination um talk to us a little bit about that i think ever since he was a um a boy and we know something about his childhood because he wrote an autobiography um called tiful minalkari a child from the village um which i helped translate with uh william shepherd and um, ever since he was uh, young, could have believed um, in an unseen realm. You know, I think this is common uh, for many Egyptians, but a realm of, of spirits, of Afarit and jinn and so forth. But this sort of you know, unseen world um, was superior to the material world. And um, it was full of mysteries and truth and so forth. As a boy, he tried to tap into it. He was always interested in, in, in uh, folk tales and stories that uh, talked of these magical beings and so forth. As a poet in the 1930s and 1940s, he also tried to tap into this sort of spiritual realm. He thought that's where poetic truth resided. Um, and, you know, the poet was a person who had sort of special insight into this spiritual uh, realm. So I think it was just sort of a small step to... Um, um, you know, make, make the transition um, to, to Islamism. Um, again, you know, Islamists believe in the truth um, of, of the unseen world and in, in, in a realm of heavens and so forth. And, you know, could have, could have basically, as an Islamist, again, sort of, you know, tapped into this realm of, of, of mystery and truth um, in order to bring some of that truth down to earth. There's sort of a Gnosticism in, in Kutub's thought. You know, this this idea that you know people might think they're free, um, that they are autonomous agents, they might even believe that they are Muslims following God's truth, uh, but in fact the reality of God's truth is um, is obscured, is is shielded from them because leaders don't implement true Sharia Islamic law. Um, it's it's not enough that Muslims, you know, engage in the rituals of their faith. They have to live um, in the purview of a true Islamic order, um, one that it's permeated by this the spiritual truth and in, in, in all of its dimensions. So so Kutub is a sort of enlightened individual. You know, he he always he always regarded himself as sort of um, above the masses, as someone who had sort of special insight and so forth. Uh, did so as a poet and now as an Islamist. He's he's basically bringing trying to bring this truth back uh, down to ground level. It sounds like he's quite purist and black and white in his thinking. Well, that's for sure. Um, you know, he wasn't um, a Salafi as that term is currently understood. You know, he wasn't ritualistic in terms of his devotion. 
Um, he wore Western style clothing, you know, a jacket, trousers. He had the sort of cropped mustache of the period. Didn't wear a skull cap normally. In the United States, we know that he loved Western classical music. He would listen to Beethoven and Mozart and so forth. He was a devotee of the cinema, thinking that French movies were superior to American, but loved going to the cinema, um, the Western cinema. His, his, his belief was more sort of conceptual than, than devotional, you know, in the Salafi sense. So he, uh, he basically believes that, you know, Islam is the carrier of the truth and um, that it ought to prevail in the world. And um, if Islam is not provided scope, um, then Muslims have to take things into their own hands and force the issue. And he never sort of, you know, overtly advocated violence against the Egyptian regime or any other political order. You read between the lines, and he basically is calling for Muslims to resist, to engage in offensive jihad. Not a struggle to defend the faith, but a struggle to propagate the faith in the world, extend its purview and its extent, especially against ostensibly Muslim regimes, refuse to implement all Sharia, Islamic law. He sounds quite, he sounds quite a, in a way, quite a literally snobby kind of character who sort of, um, uh, religions become more important to him and it, as time's gone on to the point where obviously when he was, he was imprisoned and uh, was confronted with the injustices and the sort of um, horrendous sort of things going on, he kind of almost became, I don't know, it sounds like he sort of went through a sort of post-traumatic kind of stress disorder kind of crisis that that um, has led to his sort of more radical leanings whilst he was in prison. Well, I think that's exactly right. I mean, he was always sort of, um, he was a melancholy man. Um, he had friends, solitary though, Never was never married, as far as I can tell, never had sexual relations. There were a couple of women he was interested in. In one case, he was spurned. He, uh, he's, he's not a, I don't think I would have liked him personally. <laughs> <laughs> well, for a variety of reasons, but I mean, he wasn't sort of an engaging sort of, you know, personality, um, priggish and um, a bit sort of elitist, as you say, uh, tended to look down on, on others. Um, regarded himself as sort of part of this sort of spiritual or literary elite. Um, only natural that he should be sort of the figurehead of this, uh, this, this conspiratorial group that formed outside of prison um, in the 1960s. Um, but I think you're quite right. I think, you know, the prison experience bent him out of shape. Um, I think he was deeply embittered. Um, there was one episode, I believe it was 1957, 1958, when a group of Muslim um, brothers who had been sort of caught in that sort of Nasserist dragnet um, attempted to escape or went on strike. They were, they were killed. They were massacred in their cell, cells, a few dozen of them. And um, Kutub, of course, was uh, a man of frail health, and he spent much of his time in Limantura in the prison infirmary. And he was there when the wounded were brought in. And the floors would have been slick with the blood of these Muslim brothers. And, and I think this just sort of added to Qutb's uh, uttered sort of distaste and disdain uh, for the Nasserist regime. You know, he had nothing to do um, in prison, whether in his cell or the infirmary, uh, except think and um, live, as he says, in the shade of the Quran. Uh, read its verses and interpret those verses in light of the ongoing experience of prison. 
You know, Islam is very much what believers say it is. I mean, always between scripture and the believer, there are personal sensibilities. Somebody might have a mystical temperament. Somebody might be more comfortable with a literalist interpretation of the faith. There are political interests. There are cultural sensibilities. All of these things determine the way a faith experience is believed and practiced. And Qutb is reading the Quran, you know, through this sort of lens of anger and bitterness. And this leads him to fasten on some verses at the expense of others, to reinterpret others and ways that make sense of his experience. This this whole exercise of interpreting the Quran was, was meant to provide an interpretation that spoke to the existential condition of, of 20th century Muslims. What is to be done? You know, how should you be a Muslim in this in this current age, this period of, of the new Jahiliya? And scholars have criticized Qutb because, you know, they argue that only scholars or qualified individuals can legitimately interpret the Quran. And as we're saying, in a sense, he's been very much clouded by his, shall we say, extreme trauma in prison. And it's interesting as well that scholars also observe that um, amateurs tend to be attracted to the allegorical or excessively literal understandings of Islamic textual sources. Can you elaborate a bit on that? Yes, you know, it's, it's interesting that, um, you know, Qutb was certainly sort of familiar with the, the various schools of Quran interpretation and so forth. He was, he was well read, but he was not a graduate of the Azhar. I mean, let's be clear on that. He wasn't trained, you know, um, in the science of exegesis. And another thing that sort of distinguished him from the men of the Azhar was his emphasis on the Quran's emotional import. He wrote a very interesting book in the 1940s called Artistic Depiction in the Quran, which he talked about the effect of Quranic language, uh, symbols, and so forth on the individual imagination, the, the, the emotional effect of hearing the Quran recited reading the Quran and seeing in one's mind certain images and so forth that have an effect, an aesthetic effect um, on, on the individual. Mm. Um, and so he, he brings with him, you know, into his Islamism, this sort of emotional appreciation of, of the Quran. The Quran is something that can energize believers to action. Uh, prompt them to um, engage with the world, but yes, you, you're, you know, this is this is a charge made. But you know, in Islam, there is no priesthood and so forth. There is no capstone of doctrinal authority, at least in Sunni Islam. Believers are free to read the Quran. The point is that that Qutb and other ideologues of Islamism um, interpreted the Quran in, in in ways that had popular appeal, that that spoke to popular discontent. As a consequence, they gained uh, a following. And um, against that following, the ulama were oftentimes uh, defenseless. You know, they, they, they could do nothing about it. Again, you know, most, most Islamists regarded the ulama as sort of out of touch with modern times, as mouthpieces of the um, political order. But on the other hand, is somebody who spoke to the needs of the people offered them sort of a, an ideology, an explanation of how the world works. I suppose one thing that comes to mind is to talk about this, because there's a lot of people out there who are always looking for this idea that Islam's fundamentally a violent religion. And I want to make sure no one walks away thinking that's the case and thinking that Saeed Qutb represents what ordinary Muslims think. Where does Saeed Qutb, in a sense, fit into, should we say, mainstream Islamic thought? 
if that you know if that's, if that's the best way to put it. Well, you know, as we've discussed, Kutub, you know, has has many phases um, to his career, and um, you know, it's interesting that the Muslim Brothers and the Muslim Brothers are not at root a jihadi group. Um, they've adopted this sort of gradualist method in ways we've already talked about. You know, the leadership of the Muslim Brotherhood um, continues to kind of revere Kutub. Uh, they, de- they decry some of the more extremist aspects of his thought, and they sort of understand those extremist aspects of his thought to be historically contingent, mm-hmm. in other words, precipitated by his uh, prison experience. But they understand also that there's much else in his thought that is um, orthodox, to use a term, or from Christianity, um, that adheres to sort of mainstream understandings of, of Islam. Um, that said, they do regard the body of his thought as dangerous. Um, you have to sort of have reached a certain level within the Muslim Brotherhood hierarchy to be able to kind of read the full corpus of Qutb, um, because there's always the danger that his more radical thought might sort of corrupt younger Muslim brothers and so forth. But without, you know, outside of Islamism generally, I, I think Qutb is, is regarded um, as, as a dangerous thinker, as, as someone... Um, who took Islam down a wrong or a wrong path? What Kutub has done, of course, is to delve into the medieval literature on on jihadism and so forth, and to apply many of those concepts, you know, to the uh, the modern period. And most modern Muslims, of course, have sort of made peace with that sort of um, those aspects of the Arab Islamic heritage. There's certainly, groups like Al Qaeda. Sort of like that idea of, as you called it earlier, that we're in a world of ignorance. They like to paint this idea that we're somehow in a in a time that's similar to to sort of Muhammad's early days. Yes, it's a very sort of ahistorical understanding um, of the world. The idea is that there's this sort of constant struggle between light and darkness, uh, good and evil. Um, the setting may change, um, the players may differ, but the struggle goes on. I mean, Islamists, radicalists especially, have always believed that time is on their side. I mean, many of the cadre of the Islamic State believe that they may be defeated, that they may fail, but um, that the struggle um, is continuing and will continue into the future. Yeah. What do you think Qutb would make of groups like Al-Qaeda and even ISIS today? Qutb never advocated um, violence against innocents. Um, he believed that perhaps there should be an uprising against a political regime, uh, as I say, a Leninist-style surgical strike, but he never would have agreed with al-Qaeda or the Islamic State's targeting of, of civilians. I mean, this is, a, this is a, a bone of debate within the radical Islamist camp these days um, itself. I don't think he would have understood al-Qaeda's targeting of the United States, um, the attack against the Twin Towers. Certainly would have understood their um, distrust of America and and disgust with its foreign policy and culture and so forth. But in his mind, uh, the struggle against um, what a later Islamist called the um, the near enemy was paramount. Uh, what 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 Muslims have to do is unseat those iniquitous regimes in Muslim-majority countries. Um, that is the first and most important order of business. All else will follow from that. Once true Islamic orders are established in countries like you know Egypt and Syria um, and other countries, um, then Muslims will be empowered and they will be able to deal um, with the Western world. 
um, in a way that is effective. Um, so, so Kutub never really sort of thought of, of targeting um, Westerners or Western targets. Kutub's kind of become a household name today because of 9-11. Um, but you mentioned it's sort of unwise to assume a sort of direct link between Kutub and Al-Qaeda. Um, and in a way, they sort of monopolized and distorted our understanding of his contribution to Islamism. Can you just tell us a bit more about that? Well, I, I think, you know, Kutub is part of the genealogy. Uh, so is Abdullah Azam, you know, the great um, college jihad in Afghanistan. And, and there are several other uh, thinkers who um, helped formulate the radical Islamist ideology. They all had a, a, a role in um, creating the phenomenon. But I, I think that, you know, we can't sort of overplay this influence. And I think Qutb has to be sort of understood within his own distinctive Egyptian context. I mean, this is what I try and do in my book. I, I try and um, situate Qutb within his time and place because he was responding to events on the ground. He wasn't looking sort of ahead, you know, um, 9-11, you know, I mean, that wasn't sort of a goal of his. I mean, he couldn't even, as we've discussed, even have conceived that. Um, he simply wanted to unseat you know, the Nasserist regime in Egypt and begin an Islamic revolution that would spread throughout Muslim lands. You know, as, as, as historians, we have to sort of always sort of engage with the particular. We always have to sort of have to situate historical actors within their multiple contexts and understand them that way. Um, not look at their lives and careers um, in hindsight, because that inevitably leads to distortion. And how how popular is Qutb today? And what do you think is the key to his enduring popularity? Well, I, I think he's a revered figure. I, I think um, most Islamists, uh, certainly most radicals, um, are familiar with Qutb, have read his work, at least some of it. Milestones continues to be a widely disseminated tractate. Um, that said, you know, those whom we refer to as Salafi jihadis, the cadre of the Islamic State, for example, um, look to other thinkers, um, al-Maqdisi, for example. Um, Qutb is there in the background. Um, he's revered. Um, but I think it's, it's these, these other more recent thinkers who have... Um, Really created the um, you know the current um, iteration of, of of radical Islamism um, amongst you know sort of ordinary mainstream Muslims the vast majority of Muslims in the world Sayyid Qutb I think remains sort of a, a, a dangerous figure you mentioned the name and it, it will raise eyebrows and um, even if people haven't read anything uh, about Sayyid Qutb read any of his works. You know him as someone who has inspired, you know, the, uh, the more vociferous uh, tendencies that have emerged out of their faith, which they, of course, attempt to protect against uh, the inroads of radicalism. John, thank you very much for all of that. It's been a really interesting uh, discussion. Where can, where can sort of listeners uh, find out more about you and your work, and where can they find your book as well? My book is available on Amazon and other online vendors, um, at bookstores here and there. I have a small sort of web page on my university website at Creighton University, working on another project right now dealing with the British experience in, in Egypt, an episode of colonial violence that took place in 1906, in fact, the year of Qutb's birth. Um, so I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm writing about that.
Well, anyway, it's been a real pleasure talking with you, uh, Chris. I, I, I appreciate the invitation. Thank you very much. A pleasure. Like what we're doing? Support the show by becoming a Dry Cleaner Cast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. For more information about the podcast, visit our website at drycleanercast.co.uk. Thanks for listening.